MSW Media. This week, Donald Trump delivered the State of the Union address to Congress. And as usual, it was full of false and misleading statements. Fact checkers worked overtime to correct Trump's false claims, but many of them were repeated countless times. How should the media report on Trump's false and misleading claims? And how do Trump's lies shape our political debate and the way we view his presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, um, I don't know about you, but I, I suffered through the State of the Union uh, address this week. Um, I, I have to admit that, you know, it, it it's not, you know, I, I, I'm somebody who tries to be informed uh, about what's going on in the country. But, um, you know, a lot of a lot of that speech, I felt like I was becoming less informed uh, by watching it. Well, some of it becomes a rally, especially when people are chanting, you know, USA, like we're at a sporting event or something uh, gets strange for, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, it was interesting. Um, you know, I was you know, I've always I've been wondering and I've been watching how the press has covered Trump and a lot of the false statements that he makes. And right. that's been evolving over time. And, you know, what, one thing I thought that I thought was interesting is that uh, a fact checker I, I I really respect uh, who we're actually going to be um, bringing in uh, shortly talked about how there was fewer lies or or false statements that were made by Trump uh, in this speech than the typical one because he's actually working huh. off of a teleprompter so impromptu uh-huh. he tends to uh, lie uh, more than he does when he has prepared remarks which I suppose makes sense in in a way. Um, but it sure seemed to me like there were some very important false and misleading claims um, in this speech. Well, and, and you know, he's also doing more grand things. You know, we've had we have more women in Congress or if he's talking about, you know, maternity leave, paternity leave and and then switches to talking about, you know, the lie that he did definitely that stuck out for me is the idea about late term abortion and ripping babies from the womb. And you're like, OK, hold on a second. But, you know, when he's making these sweeping statements. I think it's, you know, less about being truthful and more about just rallying or, you know, solidifying that base that still loves him so much. Don't you think? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, uh, to me, one of the lies that really stood out is um, along the same lines in terms of appealing to the base, which was um, this lie that uh, illegal immigration uh, is or, you know, the undocumented immigrants in the United States are somehow connected to uh, crime. Right. And in fact, undocumented immigrants commit crime at a lower rate than native born citizens. So mm-hmm. if you were trying to figure out how to attack crime problem, it would not be by focusing on undocumented immigrants. And there are reasons in it, you know, that, that people can give for caring about undocumented immigration, but crime really has nothing to do with it. Uh, to me, it's really just a way of trying to play on people's stereotypes and fears and, uh, You know, that's something I think is the sort of claim that the media has trouble covering, because when they when they talk about Trump's claims about a crisis or about crime or this and that, they are feeding into the narrative. Right. I mean, saying things like the lawlessness at the border, I assure you there are many men and women in law enforcement who will tell you they're doing their job. So those kinds of statements. And and to your point about uh, illegal immigrants, he said, did he say countless crimes and murders? As though, like, somehow we're we're losing track or something, and it's th- and that's you know another sort of rallying cry to to scare people. It, I think. It, yeah, exactly. I mean, I will say, you know, in my years here, you know, I was spent almost a decade as a federal prosecutor in Chicago. The the crime problem we had was not undocumented immigrants problem. It was gangs and violence and and thing broader societal 
um, problems that um, bred some of those, you know, fed into some of those issues. And I think, you know, fed into the issue of violence and, and um, you know, narcotics and other things. So, I, you know, to me, um, you know, the idea that, uh, you know, undocumented immigrants were ca- are causing, you know, crime in Chicago and at, at, a, at a rate uh, that that would deserve attention on that basis uh, is just it, it's totally flies in the face of my experience. And it didn't surprise me that the numbers show, you know, nationwide showed the same thing. Exactly. So let let me bring in somebody I really admire. I got to admit that I was giddy uh, when he said <laughs> yes, when I invited him to come on. And that's Daniel Dale, who is Washington bureau chief for the Toronto Star. Uh, he is a prolific fact checker uh, who, whenever Trump gives a speech, is he's on Twitter dissecting and reporting on every single false statement that Trump makes in every speech. Uh, I'm so excited to have him, so let's uh, bring him in now. Well, thank you for joining us. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. So I I've, I got to ask you, this is a question that really, um, that really uh, jumped out at me, is how how did you go from being somebody who you're you're a a, cor- a correspondent a you know the Washington bureau chief for a large Canadian newspaper you go from that to being to to taking on this fact checker role for Trump so it's been it's been a strange journey because i'm i'm as you said i'm not a full-time fact checker i'm not employed by politifact or factcheck.org um what what happened was i was covering the 2016 campaign and it was september um so late in the campaign and there was a day where trump was just so dishonest you know he made i I think it was somewhere in the teens uh false claims which at that point to me was was striking and i was frustrated that this was not being treated as a major story of that day or of his candidacy um reporters were sometimes fact checking him on Twitter as he spoke, but then if you were to read their their final articles or watch the nightly news or read online or whatever, you know you wouldn't be told that that one candidate you know said 15 false things in this speech or on this day, and so I thought I'd just sort of very informally uh, make a list and tweet out a screenshot, and I did that, and the response was was large. People were just so grateful that someone was providing this information. Um, so I thought, okay, I'll do this on days where he's especially dishonest. Um, and then what happened was Michael Moore, of all people, the filmmaker, tweeted something like, uh, every day on Twitter, this Canadian journalist makes a list of uh, every, everything that Donald Trump says that's not true. And that tweet went viral, and people were thanking me for doing this every day. And so I said, well, I guess I have to, <laughs> I guess I have to do it every day now. And so that wasn't the plan. And so... Uh, I took a brief break for the uh, transition transition period. Uh, I did every day, September, October, early November, uh, break for the transition. And then I thought, you know, this will this would still be valuable uh, information if I if I could fact check him during his presidency. And so I resumed on Inauguration Day. Wow. I, I will tell you, I can I can appreciate that. I I will tell you, I tweet on the side about legal issues, and I didn't exactly uh, intend to spend hours of my day doing that either. And it similarly grew out of uh, out of something unplanned. And for what you're doing, I will say it's a public service that I that <laughs> I from my perspective. Um, but it's interesting to me because I have to say, uh, Daniel, if you weren't doing this, I don't know if we would have such a record. In other words. You know, people talk about somebody making a difference here. To me, w- the work that you do doesn't it says certain things about Trump and the sort of individual he is that you're that there's that there's this this need that you're filling or you know potentially you're you're creating news by doing this. But it also says something to me that that you that you're you you are you know the only person doing this to the extent that you're doing it in the way you're doing it. Yeah, it's been interesting sort of filling this niche. So, of course, there are very good American fact checkers. The Washington Post also maintains uh, uh, their own version of, of the comprehensive list that I keep. You know, PolitiFact is doing good work. FactCheck.org is doing good work. Um, but I think there there was a, a niche to be filled here. I think part of it is simply a matter of resources. You know, we all know that um, 
the number of reporters and journalists of all kinds, especially in newspapers, has dwindled over the past 10 years. Um, and so pe- even people who are covering Trump, they may want to fact check him, but they don't have time because, you know, there's this fire hose of news. They might be the only person for their paper or part of a small team. So I, I think there are sort of benign explanations for why people aren't doing this. But I think it is, you know, there was a big hole because, as I, as I said before, I, I think his dishonesty is a central story of him and a central story now of his presidency. And I think if we don't challenge it, you know, we miss a central story and, and we, we let uh, misinformation lies in many cases just spread without, without correction. So yeah, there, there was a hole there and I'm happy that I can sort of fill it. Um, I was I was actually wondering because you you gave an interview recently about how doing all this fact checking has really made you reevaluate your relationship with journalism and telling the truth. What do you hope you know? Not just the record that you are establishing, but perhaps the impact that other journalists might sort of be able to incorporate in the way they cover stories. Well, one thing I've pushed for is for fact checking to be treated as an integral part of all of our reporting, day-to-day news reporting, and not relegated to, you know, a fact-checking website. I think for a long time, the the general attitude of political reporters was, you know, we sort of, we'll just quote what the person says, what the candidate or the, the, the politician says, and then we'll quote their critics and we'll sort of call it a day. Um, and it's not our job to point out in the story, you know, why that quote is not true or how it might be misleading. And to me, that's just basic journalism. It, you know, it's not it's not opinion to say, you know, this statement is factually incorrect. Um, and so my argument has been, you know, let's put that correction in our news stories. Let's put it in the headlines. Let, let's not just leave it to the, the weekend fact check or to a fact check website. Um, and and let's challenge the candidate or, or the politician, in this case, Trump, when when they say it all the time. Um, and so my, my, my emphasis to my colleagues, you know, with great respect for all the work they're doing is, you know, let's make, make this a, a bigger and more central part of what we do. One, one comment that, I, that you have made in the past that I found very interesting was you talked about how um, when a lot of the stories in local papers uh, report about uh, a speech that Trump gave in their particular state or particular city, the headlines of those stories won't be, you know, Donald Trump makes 48 false statements right, uh, in right. that speech. What do, what do you say to reporters who, who might say, who may, may say in the alternative, well, everyone knows that Trump lies and they've, they've internalized it at this point. It's no longer news. I think that's fair. And of course, you know, when Trump goes to, you know, small town, Nevada or Montana or Pennsylvania or wherever, um, I understand, you know, local paper might run a headline that's just like the president has come to town. I I get all that. Um, I I think it remains a story that the, the president is this dishonest. And I also think that even people who generally know that he is lying to them, um, may not know how he is lying to them about a particular subject of interest. So even if even if people say, well, I know, you know, he's a BSer, he doesn't really he doesn't really tell the truth. You know, they may not understand uh, why you know point X Y Z about immigration is wrong, and they may be basing their own um, views on that policy on on information that's not in fact correct. So I I understand that you know. You can't make every headline, you know, Trump made 30 false claims in the speech, but it should be in the story. I think it should be high in the story. Um, so, of, of course, not everyone's going to do exactly what I do, but I, I just think that um, there has to be something better than ignoring it completely. Yeah, I have to say um, that my take on this is that Trump is taking advantage of norms that we have because presidents typically don't engage in the levels of lying and deception and misleading statements that Trump has. I mean, all politicians, I think, have, you know, various shades of of gray that they have in their statements. But Trump really takes that to a new level. And so I what I've seen is in real time, the media trying to adjust to Trump being an outlier. Would you agree with that? I, I, th- I think that's true. And I, I think there has been improvement since Trump emerged on the scene. And I think 
many media outlets and many reporters just didn't quite know what to do with him. And I'd include myself in that. You know, there was an adjustment period um, and, and there's an adjustment in particular to this level of lying. But I, I think he does benefit from um, an over uh, an, an, an over insistence. I don't think of the word, but I think I think there is um, there is an over reliance on old norms and, a, and a, an unwillingness to depart from them, even when I think it's necessary. And so I think, you know, one of those norms is we don't call the president a liar. We don't use the word lie. Um, you know, we don't we don't do the fact check in the news story. That's a separate thing. I think all of those things have helped Trump. Um, and, and that's gotten better. But I think certainly in 2015 and 2016, all, all, all those norms benefited him. You know, it's, I, I agree with that. And l- let me before we move on to because I do think the the point you're ra- raising here about the effect of those norms on his election to be president, I think, is very important. But I want to first talk about this lies versus false statement uh, thing, because I see a lot on on Twitter and elsewhere, a lot of folks saying that. It, they're very upset and concerned that um, major publications, whether it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, et cetera, will instead of saying Trump lied in a particular circumstance, say, well, he falsely says this or he makes a false statement. And as a lawyer, um, that's a sort of distinction that um, means something to me. In other words, um, when I write things, I'm also careful and precise about what I write. And it may be that Trump really believes um, his own nonsense uh, and really believes that, you know, all sorts of crazy things that he says are true, um, such that it's hard to know whether he's deliberately lying or whether he's just saying his own view of the world, which is false, but diluted. Um, do you think that making that sort of distinction and how you describe what Trump says is more misleading to people than just calling it a lie? It's 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 hard. I I am. Um, it's interesting because I am praised for using the word lie more than most journalists, but I also get a lot of criticism for not always using it. So, for example, I I, I released this weekly a list of his false claims from the previous week, and I call that a list of false claims. And literally, literally every single week, I get people saying, "Stop normalizing him. Call call it. It's a list of lies. You know, Daniel, call it lies." Um, and I, I can't call it a list of lies because I'm not confident that all of them are intentional. And some people say to that, well, you know, why, why give him the benefit of the doubt? You know, he, after this many that are lies. And to me, um, I just have to be precise as a journalist and, you know, as, as a lawyer, it's never like, well, you know, this is a bad witness or a bad client. So I just have to relax my standards. Um, and so, in many cases, like, you know, he makes up phone calls. He makes up, uh, he, he claims that people were crying, you know, uh, endlessly. They're always crying around him when, when we know we can go back to the video and see that people weren't crying. I think there are things like that that are clear lies. There, there are uh, claims he makes about immigration that are clear lies. You know, Democrats are, uh, are inviting this caravan, um, you know, Middle Easterners in the caravan. All, there was so much stuff in the lead up to the midterm. I think that was deliberate lying. But when he talks about health policy or tax policy, like, are any of us really confident that that Donald Trump has any idea what he's talking about on on uh, some of these more complicated subjects? And so in some cases, I just feel that, you know, as as closely as I've watched him for three years now, um, I I just don't know if he's doing it on purpose. So you mentioned a moment ago, you alluded to the fact that the norms that we had uh, or that the media had in terms of how they covered pre- the president and presidential candidates had a role to play in the 2016 election. Can you explain what your thoughts are on that? Yes. Well, I think that um, the norms of uh, so-called objectivity and, and so-called balance um, helped him in, in multiple ways. One of them was that I think media outlets were reluctant to call him a liar, point out that he was lying, um, because, you know, that would that would be a significant departure from the journalistic norm that, you know, you just sort of put his the, the candidate statement out there and let people let people decide for themselves. Um, I think there was a desire to uh, to balance, you know, the number of 
um, Trump controversies or scandals by devoting uh, significant coverage to the, the one major scandal, you know, arguably, uh, scandal um, that Hillary Clinton had. And so that, that resulted in this one issue, you know, getting so much coverage that everyone knew about it, where every individual Trump scandal, you know, passed so, so quickly that, that uh, it resonated much less. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I think there were a bunch of ways that sort of devotion to old norms and an attempt to sort of uh, appear balanced um, uh, assisted him as a candidate. You know, as president, I think that Trump has benefited from norms, not just regarding false statements, but it seems to me that he's also benefited from norms that were, I think, established with when there was a baseline of presidents acting differently. For example, it used to be that we were getting all the, the cable news networks, uh, you know, uh, putting all of his a lot of his addresses, uh, public addresses. Right. And, right. And then also the press, the pressers uh, with uh, with um with uh, his press secretary were were being aired in real time that is that is starting to change but it's it, because he was in, he was taking advantage of that by just increasing the number of these things that's that's a great point i think that that was uh that was a norm you know you you broadcast when the president talks you know if you're a news station you show it um and we learn with trump you know often those addresses are filled with filled with lies and and so news Elvis have had to make different calculations, but yeah, I think um, so. I, I think there has been uh, over time uh, uh, a relaxing of norms where where we've realized, you know, they just don't suit our they just don't suit our our needs anymore, given the way that Trump himself is departing from norms. But um, but I, you know, I, I think some of them still persist in ways that they should. What are some of those? Well, just I mean, the I I I think um, many outlets are still simply quoting him, uh, especially in headlines, you know, and and so you get this flurry of uh, flurry of headlines when he says something untrue that just like Trump declares or Trump says, uh, and then sometimes later after being shamed, the uh, the outlet will add, you know, without evidence or baselessly or or one of those words, and so I think the the norm that you know, you quote the president because what the president says is is news. Uh, I think is 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 insufficient for for this era. Yeah, I have to say, um, w- to me, the biggest challenge uh, with covering Trump in, in covering Trump in a way that is um, not misleading and that serves the public interest is that Trump often, through the way that he makes false claims and through the way he emphasizes things sort of frames issues in a way that are inherently misleading. And so, for example, right, the the whole quote unquote crisis about a quote unquote caravan. Okay, I mean, that that was something that appeared to me to be conjured out of thin air in the run up to the midterm election. And then that caravan, I don't know what happened to it uh, after the midterm election, but certainly Donald Trump and many of his surrogates and and the media, uh, you know, in uh, in the right wing side, uh, Fox News and like stopped talking about it. But up in the run up to the midterm election, we heard an endless drumbeat of crisis and caravan. And I thought there was some excellent coverage by um, The Washington Post and other publications debunking a lot of the false statements that Trump was making about the caravan and about this immigration crisis. But the fact was, is that the front pages in the weeks uh, and days, days and weeks in the run up to the midterm election were dominated by coverage and discussion of a caravan and of immigration, which was ultimately what his end and what his goal was in doing that in the first place. Yeah, I think that's right. And and that I think that that also goes back to sort of campaign coverage norms, which is, you know, you cover uh what the what the 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 two sides, you know, uh are emphasizing. So if if Trump is talking intestinally about the caravan, well that's a midterm campaign and so it's our duty to devote, you know, extensive coverage to the issues that they're trying to highlight. Um and and the thought is not well um from 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 an, uh, a strictly factual perspective, from the perspective of of news value, you know, do we have to you know put this on our front page or uh, make this an emphasis, you know, every time the president wants to emph- emphasize it, even if he is, you know, obviously 
um, attempting to stoke fear, even if this is an obvious play for us to do, you know, what we've always done. Um, and yeah, I, I think that was a problem. Another um, norm that I think helps him uh, just occurred to me was the level of deference that I think he is often shown in interview and, and media gaggle settings, you know, when he's departing on Marine One or something. I think there are lots of cases where, you know, his, his statements are so nonsensical uh, or, or fact-free, you know, they're, they're, they're so dishonest that I think an appropriate response would be like, what? Or I'm sorry, like, that, so, you know, that's, that's not true. How can you say that when the facts are such and such? You know, what, why do you keep saying that when, you know, every expert and your own government say, you know, I, I just think that he, he, uh, he should be challenged more aggressively or assertively. And I think he's not because of the, you know, the old norms of how, how you talk to a president that I don't, I don't think he always earns. Yeah, it's interesting. We had had a podcast, uh, you know, uh, late last year, late, late in 2018, about the revocation of the press credential uh, and some of the the uh, rules that the White House was trying to impose uh, regarding civility amongst journalists. And it struck me that that was in part an attempt to address that. Uh, you know, reporters were becoming more aggressive in asking questions in part because the questions weren't being answered or they were being answered falsely or, um, you know, you know, there was rude, uh, you know, I think there were sometimes the, the, the statements towards them or the answers to them were rude. And, and what the white house is trying to do is essentially forcing the journalists to play with, uh, with kid gloves, uh, while, you know, which I think gives more freedom for, uh, Trump and his team to make false statements. That's that's interesting. I I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, and I I think part of it was just uh, they relished making an uh, making example of of Jim Acosta, you know, who the, uh, the Trump base sees as you know a grandstander. You know, every, everything they hate about the you know the smug liberal elite media or whatever, you know, uh, they they see in Jim Acosta. So I, I think multiple factors went into that, but I think your your theory is is plausible. Yeah, another. I mean, also just I would say another issue that I think journalists have to to make sure that listeners get the right um, the right context for this is because I'm I know a lot of of uh, a lot of our listeners will bring up because I read all of the comments and Patty reads all of the comments. They'll bring up, well, why didn't the journalist ask this or that? They didn't ask this obvious follow-up question. I think sometimes, well, first of all, it's hard to do things on your feet. But also, aside from aside from that, um, if journalists are going to be as aggressive as you suggested a moment ago, Daniel, they have to know the facts themselves well enough to know that when they are aggressively calling the president of the United States to task, that they've got their facts right. They'll look very foolish the day later if they get something wrong. And so since Trump makes so many false statements in so many different ways and so many different topics, unless it's something that has been extensively covered and debunked, uh, I think journalists at times are afraid of being hyper aggressive in questioning about it. I think that's right, and and I, I think that's totally legitimate. You know, you can't uh, you can't, or at least very much, do not want to be wrong when you are holding yourself out as a as a corrector of the president. You know, especially if it's live television or a high profile interview. Um, but my my gripe has been that so many of these claims are repeated that there's no excuse for journalists not coming armed with those facts. So I, I would you know always forgive someone who didn't know you know, why some new false claim is wrong. But some of them, he said literally, you know, dozens of times, he's over a hundred for claiming that, you know, the trade deficit with China is 500 billion. He's, he's over, I think, I think he's over 90 for claiming that uh, his, his border wall is already under construction. And so when he says these things uh, for me, you know, you know, having debunked it or or tried to debunk it every time um, it's, it's frustrating to watch, journalists either not come armed with those facts or or not feel that it's appropriate to to challenge him on them. Do, do you think part of that is the, the dominance that the, his attention is toward Fox? And, and, and how much of a burden is that for journalists, that they're kind of competing with a, a station or a network, pardon me, that uh, pretty much has his ear? It, it's, it's, I mean, it is a challenge. And so when I, when I criticize, you know, his, his interviewers, um, I think it's important to remember that a huge percentage of them are from Fox or, or Mike Huckabee or, you know, someone else who's not, who he picks 
precisely because they're not going to ask tough questions. Um, so I think that's part of why I get extra frustrated, you know, on the rare occasions where he sits down with the New York Times uh, or, or CBS or NBC or, or you know, uh, a non, uh, you know, a non right wing, a non sycophantic outlet, you know, just such a rare opportunity that I'm like, come on, let's do it. Um, but it, it is it is a challenge for us um, and, and for those interviewers because, you know, he he has a limited appetite for being challenged. And so I think, you know, those outlets are very much aware that if they go too hard on him, they're not going to get, you know, any other calls. And he's just going to speak to Sean Hannity or or Laura Ingram or, you know, Judge Janine or whoever it is. So knowing that he has this sort of safety blanket that he can always go to, I think, um, I think is sort of a weapon for him. Do you think that in a in a softer way that that has always existed? In other words, I'll, you know, in the back of their mind, every journalist knows that the harder or the tougher that they are on someone that they cover, then that person is more likely to go to a competitor uh, for an interview in the future. Yeah, I think that that has always existed. But I think the difference is with, um, well, there, there are a couple of things. I mean, um, on, on one hand, I, I think other presidents, um, you know, although many of them are quite skin thinned about their media coverage, um, they had more respect for the role of the media uh, and and understood that, um, you know, they're going to be challenged. That's what happens in an interview where I don't I don't know if we we assume that Trump has that, that understanding. Um, I, I think the other from the other perspective, though, you know, Trump gives people uh, he gives mainstream outlets so few interviews um, that I think for me, it's like, well, what, what the heck, why not use your one high profile moment to try to do something really new and, and test him and probe him. And, you know, if he gets, if he gets mad at you, then so be it. You know, I don't, I don't think you're losing that much. So one, one issue that I think is a, a, a challenge for everyone covering or analyzing or commenting or dis- discussing what Trump is doing is what you know you referred to uh i think obliquely when you were talking about the 2016 election when you said look Hillary had one scandal of we'll put air quotes around the word scandal uh, Trump had many uh various scandals on the other side and the the flood of news the flood of scandals the flood of issues is so great it's like being on a treadmill covering these things right you're just constantly going and go, hopping from one thing to another and it seems to me that it makes it hard for issues that are really important uh, to otherwise receive the coverage that they deserve. I'm curious if you agree with that and if there are issues that you particularly think are not being covered uh, in the depth that they should be. I, I think that's indisputably true with Trump. And that, that's one where I don't really have a, a prescription for how to solve it. I mean, there's just so much. And there's the whole Russia, the Russia, <laughs> Russia thing, as Trump calls it, you know, the, 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 the legal story is such a huge story, as well as, you know, just Trump being Trump and saying odd stuff. And, you know, you have to cover that. Um, I, I think the stories that uh, would otherwise get much more coverage and that are being um, being sort of uh, forgotten or or underplayed by necessity are. Um, the stories about what his agencies are doing, you know, uh, uh, regulations on payday lenders, you know, so many environmental regulations, um, all of these, uh, you know, cuts to, you know, various consumer protections, um, uh, you know, various, uh, various changes that make life easier for various kinds of businesses. Uh, I think these tell us a lot about uh, what you know, what, where the government is going, what Trump's priorities are, and I, I think they'd be infuriating to um, a lot of voters, maybe even some Trump voters, if they if they had a greater awareness that they were happening. Um, but I, I think you know those rarely make the front pages because of everything else going on. And so I just don't I just don't know. You know, when you have 50 things going on, um, you know, for 49 things are not going to be the the lead story, and that that's just the reality of having a president like this. So his, his sort of uh, avalanche of news creation, um, I think, helps him in, in, in burying um, stories that, that might hurt him if uh, people knew about them. Yeah, I have to say, you know, another one that I would add to that mix is the ethic, various ethical 
you know, questionable ethical lapses of his administration. You know, I, I don't think a lot yeah, of yeah. people are really keyed in on what, you know, Ryan Zinke was doing. I think the typical American has no idea who the hell that is. Um, but, you know, those those various scandals from different members of his cabinet and, and you know, his family and others around him are important. And in a typical administration, we'll receive a lot of coverage. Yeah. And, and even his own scandal sometimes, like the, the Post and the Times have done very good reporting about his uh, company, his golf courses and so on, hiring a significant number of undocumented immigrants um, and then firing them when, when this emerged. And so I, I don't know if it would ch- you know, change the approval rating, but I think many of his voters would be interested to know that as he was campaigning on and, and governing you know, on this uh, anti-illegal immigration agenda, he was employing many illegal immigrants, um, but there were, he had a number of media availabilities after this broke. And I, I, still, I don't think he's been asked about it at all yet. It just gets forgotten. Like imagine if, you know, of course, of course, you know, this, it's not a comparable situation, but if Barack Obama was employing, you know, dozens or, or five or one illegal immigrant, um, I think that would be a huge, huge deal for an extended period. And, and with Trump, it just doesn't, doesn't register beyond the two papers that are leading the coverage. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, that's a story that there hasn't been a lot of uh, airtime for, and just because, frankly, there's been so much else that's going on. It seems like there's a different scandal or two or three every week. You know, I will tell you this, the subject that we're talking about today is a subject that I've wanted to cover on this podcast for weeks now, months. Uh, and it's been hard to find a week when it would be appropriate to do it. And even so, uh, there are plenty of other stories that I've had listeners uh, bugging me, like, why aren't you covering this or that? You know, the subpoenas to Whitaker, or why aren't you covering the, you know, now we have Jeff Bezos uh, breaking today. There's always a new story, it seems like, all the time um, that is somehow related to this administration. Uh, but, uh, you know, some of, uh, to me, what concerns me a lot as an American is the way in which our norms and values uh, and our system of government is changing um, in the long run. And um, I talk a lot about that on this podcast, but I, I I think that some of the things you're talking about, Daniel, are important, and I don't see a lot of other people um, talking about them. I'm curious, are there others, other people who talk about these issues that you, you think our listeners should be paying attention to? Um, well, on the, let's see, um, I think Greg Sargent of the Washington Post, um, who writes from a, a liberal, it, he, I think he calls it a reported blog from a, a, a progressive or liberal perspective. Um, I think he he does very sophisticated analysis um, of how Trump is using deception and dishonesty, uh, especially as it relates to selling policy. Um, and so, I, yeah, I, I really respect that analysis. Um, for, from a, uh, from a fact-checking perspective, um, I, I'd emphasize to people that, you know, I appreciate the, the credit, but I don't think it's quite right when they say, you know, why, do, why does it take a Canadian, you know, to be the only one to do this job that Americans should be doing? Um, th- there are others who do it. And I, I'd, I'd recommend, um, that people follow PolitiFact and factcheck.org in particular. Um, and I, I wouldn't single out any particular journalist there, but they have teams of journalists. Um, who are doing quite thorough fact-checking of the president. Um, and so, like, my most viral tweet, I think, during the State of the Union was about how Trump was lying about El Paso, Texas, and the impact that a border fence had there. And and I had just tweeted a screenshot and a link to factcheck.org, which did a very thorough debunking of the administration's claims about El Paso. So I'd say, um, you know, it's it's certainly not just me. I, I have to ask, though, uh, and some of our listeners are wondering, one, how do you pace yourself? And uh, and they're wondering <laughs> they're wondering how it is. I mean, they feel as though there's no one uh, better at it. What what are some of your secrets for staying on top of this? <laughs> Thanks. So how, how I pace myself. Um, let's see. I, <laughs> I don't really pace myself very, very well. I would say um, I try to fact check in real time as much as I can when he's speaking. Um, I can't always do that. Um, but the, the real burden, um, and it's sort of become the bane of my existence is trying to do this comprehensive list of his false claims. And so 
when he started his presidency, I could get that done in a couple hours on Sunday night, which is when I tried to do it um, because he was averaging 2.9 false claims per day in 2017. So let's say that's you know 20 or 21 a week. Often they are the same ones, so it didn't take that long. Um, in 2018, it, it, it was over eight per day. I believe it was 8.6 per day. Um, and, and so it's just so much. And I, I can't complain about it because you know, our, my journalistic colleagues are in war zones uh, where they're reporting in very difficult countries. You know, so I'm not going to complain about sitting in my pajamas in my apartment um, and, and you know, fact checking. Um, but just as a strict factual matter, you know, without complaining, it just takes a whole lot of time. And it's not my full time job. Uh, I'm still I'm not a fact checker. Um, you know, that's not what I'm really paid to be here for. So you know, today I wrote a story about a provision in the new NAFTA agreement that has been controversial with Democrats. I wrote a story this week about Joe Biden and, and sort of his strengths and weaknesses as a potential candidate. Um, and so I'm trying to do my 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 paid job uh, while I was sent here by the star and also keep up with this this crazy avalanche of of dishonesty. And it's just a lot. And so basically, I just I just sleep less um, and I relax less. And so, you know, there are a lot of days here in Washington, you know, it's a nice spring day or, you know, it's a, you know, it's a nice night where I, I, I just want to go for a walk or I just want to um, go get ice cream or just hang out with someone. Um, but instead, I'm at my computer. Um, so it's, it's a burden and it's, it's kind of exhausting. But I just I think it's cool uh, to have sort of this niche uh, as a Canadian reporter in Washington. You, you, we come here basically expecting to be ignored. Um, we don't, we have very little access, uh, it's hard to get, you know, power brokers to return our calls. So to have, you know, American readers valuing my work, um, and telling me that they appreciate it, uh, and that it's, it's helping them understand this presidency. I think that, that kind of validation, uh, is very motivating and it, it, it sort of keeps me going through, uh, through the exhausting times. That, that's fantastic. I will tell you as one American, I, I'm glad that you are, here in America covering United States politics. Thanks. I think, Thank you. I, and, I, and I can relate. I know that's really hard uh, to ha- try to do something as a second or third job and, and you know, be losing sleep as a result. And so I, I say all the thanks because it, 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 it is very much um, deserved in your case. I, I, I do want to talk about, because be, before I have you go, I do want to just touch on a few things that relate to how um, Trump's legal problems are covered because we discuss a lot of legal issues and um, me in particular. And one thing that I find interesting is that there is a consensus that sort of built up in my this is my perception. You could tell me if it's wrong that, you know, Don, yeah, obstruction of justice is out there. And, you know, Trump obstructs justice or he's trying to do that. But that's not a big deal. And we already kind of know that. And really, this entire investigation that that's going on is about something called, quote unquote, collusion, not about, you know, obstruction. That's not a big deal. I'm curious if you agree with that and why you think that is. I I don't know. um, Well, I don't think the media consensus is that obstruction doesn't matter. And I, I think if if there's a Mueller report that alleges obstruction or there's some charges to uh, against, you know, so, someone close to Trump is indicted um, for instruction, uh, obstruction related to, you know, something important, I think that'll be a huge deal. But I think, um, I think there is a perception. Well, I, and I think it's, it's largely fair that, you know, this, this Mueller was appointed to investigate, you know, any uh, links between the Trump campaign and the Russian interference effort. And so I think it makes sense that um, the focus is on is on the extent to which that can be proven. Um, but, yeah, I, I guess um, I, I guess I, I don't know exactly, but I, I don't think that there's a perception that obstruction is unimportant or that, you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't treat it as a as a hugely significant matter. Well, like, for example, I'll give you an example of something that I think is really important that didn't get much coverage. You know, the president of the United States tweets out that it criticizing his attorney general for failing to quash the indictments of two Republican congressmen because he says that it's going to that that's going to result in the Republican Party losing those seats. 
Right. To me, that's right. just straight up corrupt. I, I don't think there's any way to describe that differently. But that got like four hours of coverage, maybe <laughs> six. Yeah. Okay. That strikes me like a really important thing. And it's now treated as like the baseline for what the president of the United States does. Uh, I don't understand that. And do you yeah. think that's just the treadmill that I was talking about earlier where there's just so much stuff or I, what is it? I, I think that I, I completely forgotten about that, to be honest, and I'm embarrassed. Um, but I think that uh, it's partly the treadmill, but it's partly a different issue, which is that Trump um, does these things in public that would be, I think, treated as scandals or, or, or would be more likely to be treated as scandals. You know, if, if there was a, a, leaked, e- a leaked email uh, or a leaked memo, you know, um, if, if there was some hack or leak, you know, that showed that Trump had been, you know, uh, pressuring his attorney general to to go easy on Republican legislators, I think that would be treated as scandalous. But he just says these things. You know, we see this over and over. You know, Russia, if you're listening, uh, go get those emails. You know, imagine if that was like a, you know, uh, a leaked uh, transcript of a, of a phone call with some Russian official. Well, like, what is the sub- substantive difference between Trump saying in public or privately? But I, I think it's sort of his superpower, like being so being so uh, open about these transgressions that that people uh, even in the media are apt to say well that's just Trump being Trump I think we really have to to guard against that I think I think that's fair I mean I certainly would say that it you know if the governor of my state uh, <laughs> said that he was mad that the you know pro- the DAs here in Illinois were not uh, were were not uh, taking it easy on Democratic legislators I mean that would be a massive scandal. Um, and right. so, right. So it's just an interesting thing when the president does that and no one seems to care. I mean, I wrote an op ed in the New York Times about it and it was probably the least read thing I've ever done. No one seemed to really care. Uh, I was like, yeah, yeah, we all know that Trump obstructs justice, like no big deal. Um, another thing that really, I think to me seems like a success of Trump's and I, and I think it's an interesting success is this whole line about no collusion, right? We all, you know, he keeps talking about no collusion. The media, the question I get asked as somebody who does legal analysis is, well, it was there collusion? Does this mean there's collusion? Is collusion coming yet? Everything is about collusion, 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 which is interesting because there's no criminal code book that relates to any of this that's going to use the word collusion. And he's under investigation for all sorts of potential criminal activity or him and his associates are. And it seems to me that that diminishes other potential crimes that could be out there. I'm curious what your thoughts are about that. That's. I think that's fair. Um, I, I haven't thought too much about this, but I, I have thought that I think Trump has done a, 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 an arguably successful framing job in, you know, in saying the phrase "no collusion." You know, uh, however many dozens of times he said it, um, and 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 sort of making that um, the the litmus test. And I mean, there are smart analysts who argue that collusion have, has already been shown. Um, I don't know enough about the the Russia subject matter to have an opinion myself, um, but I think it, it is interesting that you know the the president and others have hammered home this idea that that collusion is the thing when, as you said, you know that that is not the name of of the crime. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, for instance, Trump was implicated in a campaign finance violation, a campaign finance crime that Michael Cohen is going to go to prison and serve time for. That seems really important to me. I mean, it's nothing to do with collusion, so to speak. I mean, you could you could argue it does or whatever, but uh, whatever collusion means. But but it's it's important. We don't want our presidents to commit crimes. Uh, and so <laughs> or at least we shouldn't. So I find it interesting that we've kind of changed the goalposts there. And to me, one of the things that happens sometimes on and I'll count myself as at times a, very much a vocal critic of Trump's is that sometimes Trump critics you know, we underestimate his strengths. And I think if there is a strength that Trump has, it's this sort of PR and shaping the media narrative. He seems very good at that. And I think uh, as to this collusion stuff, I think the his critics have bought into that by, I mean, as you pointed out, a lot of people say, well, there is collusion. Their response is, oh yeah, there is collusion. Instead of saying, well, whether there's collusion or not isn't the point. The point is that there's crimes that are being committed here or apparent crimes. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point. And uh, I think also, um, you know, when, when uh, numerous people around the president uh, in quite senior capacities are pleading guilty or being convicted, 
um, that's already significant, you know, no matter what else, what else we learned. I think we've learned a whole lot through the investigation uh, and we've learned of that we learned that the president was surrounding himself by, by people who were committing crimes either in their behavior or in, in deceiving federal law enforcement. Um, so yeah, I think no matter what happens from here, here out, um, none of us should dismiss what's happened before as, as somehow insubstantial. One one last thing I want to ask you is, and I'm just curious about this, is I have, since I read a lot of your fact-checking work of Trump, I, I've noticed that a lot of his crimes fall into certain buckets or that he tends to tell certain types of, of crimes. Did I say crimes? Certain types of lie, <laughs> lies. We were just talking about crimes. His, his lies uh, or false statements fall into different buckets. Uh, and then he tr- seems to lie or make false statements in very in similar ways over time. And I, I know you could probably see that even better than I do, because instead of just reading, you're actually writing this stuff and following it and tracking it. What are the, the buckets that you see and why, what do you think his motivation is for making false statements that really at times don't even necessarily serve a particular purpose? It's so hard to, to get inside his brain and un- understand his motivations. I think in some cases he is very clearly telling lies to inflame his political base. Uh, I'm thinking of the immigration lies. So we talk about buckets. The immigration bucket is, is the biggest. Uh, he made, uh, if, what was it, last, last, so in his second year in office, he made 580, I forget the exact number, 580 something false claims about immigration. That was the number one subject. And that was up from 88 in his first year. And so it, it hugely accelerated and that was because you know, he, he probably because he was dealing with immigration policy, but also because he decided to make immigration fear mongering the, the center of his campaign. So in that case, it's like, okay, this is lying, uh, but I understand why he's doing it. In, in other cases, though, I think it's just how his brain works. You know, he just, he is just used to lying about, about everything. Uh, it just, if you go back and read any biography of him, you know, he was a lying uh, real estate developer, you know, adding adding features and floors to his buildings. And he was a lying, you know, playboy celebrity and, and TV host, you know, uh, lying about The Apprentice being number one in the ratings and, you know, deceiving the tabloids in various ways in New York City. And so at this point, I think it's just how he functions. And so some of these lies, um, I, people people have this theory that, you know, he's lying about this obvious, ridiculous thing. Uh, just to demonstrate his power, you know, that he can get away, he can get away with it, uh, something this silly. I, I don't, I don't even, I don't know if I'd buy that. I think it might just be that this is how this man functions. It's never, you know, cost him. He's, he's the president. And so he's never, he's never really had to stop. Well, I mean, it's interesting. And I, he, I don't think he will stop until the day he leaves office and he probably will continue making false statements after that. Um, you know, certainly one thing that I think is unmistakable is that his impact on our society and our way of of life and our government has been very significant, and I think it will continue for some time to come. Um, but once again, I thank you for coming and being being here on the podcast, and thank you for all the work that you do uh, because it is really a, a public service. Thank, thank you, you thank so you. much. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. (laughs) 